0: Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Get It Whacked, the Macclesfield Cricket Club podcast. Over the coming weeks and months, we intend to go behind the scenes of MacC CC and meet some of the players and characters at the club, find out some things about them you never knew or most likely never wanted to know, and above all, hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Macclesfield Cricket Club is grateful for the continued support of our various sponsors. Today's featured sponsor is MKM Building Supplies. MKM Building Supplies is the UK's largest independent builders' merchant, with over 60 branches across England and Scotland, including MKM Leisure, a specialist distributor for the caravan and holiday homes industry. They aim to be the one-stop shop for building, timber and plumbing supplies, and stock a wide range of products from the industry's leading manufacturers, all at competitive prices. They hold high levels of stock on site to ensure both customers in the building trade and the general public can get what they need, when they need it. They also offer a free, reliable local delivery service to help your projects run smoothly. Without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guest. This man is widely considered to be one of the best captains the club has ever had. A master tactician, he spent many years behind the stumps, offering advice to not only his bowlers, but most of the batsmen as well. Never too far away from mischief in and around the dressing rooms, he has now assumed a much more serious position as head of the academy. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Paul Hughes. Yoz, how are you?
1: I'm very good, thanks Miles. i thawed out from Junior Sport this morning, how
0: are you? Yeah, I'm very, very good indeed. Glad not to have been uh, needing to thaw myself out because I've been inside all morning, so there we go.
1: Thanks for the kind words at the start. I've learned from some excellent captains over the past uh, and I'm grateful to have worked with them.
0: Well, I have to say, and been lucky to uh, pick up some pretty wise words from yourself over the years, so it's... uh, it's it's always a full circle with these things, isn't it? It's all about learning. Anyway, moving on, mate. Um, how, how's the kind of COVID year for, been for you, really?
1: Uh, for me personally, I've not been affected too much. I'm obviously still going into work. I never used to go out anywhere. So it's not affected me. It's affected the kids quite uh, significantly they've gone from being very active social young men to, to being cooped up at, at home and it, I feel really sorry for them and it's good that things are starting to get back to normal normality a little bit.
0: Has it sort of uh, much stress on your uh, well-being having to deal with the uh, two semi-feral children at home too much?
1: Uh, the, the, the youngster's going through a stage at the minute where there's no problem whatsoever the, the stroppy 14 year old's there. Uh, challenging at the minute
0: well I told you this story a little while ago but I'll, I'll repeat it for the uh, the listeners I, I actually saw uh, your stroppy 14 year old on on the way to school and I was driving and I thought oh I'll, I'll wave to him but he was with some of his cool mates and I thought you know what I better not do that so I just give him a little little nod and he gave me a little nod back so hopefully I didn't uh, you know crush his cool vibe
1: he'd have been mortified if he'd honk the horn and out <laughs> the window
0: I mean, I did consider, but, you know, I thought, actually, I, I better not. Moving on from that, uh, you sort of mentioned, obviously, a little bit of work. Do you want to tell everyone what you do when you're not uh, playing cricket?
1: Yeah, um, I've been a, a police officer with Cheshire Police for the last 25 years. That makes me feel very old. I'm currently working out at headquarters on the, the
0: major investigation team. Very, very good indeed. And uh, have you been busy over lockdown?
1: Um, not especially. Um, and quite significantly at the start. The, the demand dropped significantly for the frontline officers. Um, but as silliness started, levels have risen to the same as they were before lockdown. It's not particularly affected my my area of business.
0: Now moving on to some some cricketing talk here. Obviously, it is a cricketing podcast, but we like to go behind the scenes with everything. Uh, what would you say your earliest cricketing memories are, yours? Probably like most, backyard cricket
1: with with my little brother. you would have played against uh, a couple of times, I think. Yes, indeed. Always incredibly competitive but enjoyable nonetheless I was lucky enough at at school my English teacher was the the Cheshire County Leagues superstar all-rounder and he got me and uh, and Ronnie involved at cricket up at Langley he was involved in the the, the setup there so we did our junior cricket up there and I'll um, always be grateful to, to Mr. Wilson for getting us involved
0: and um, what can you uh, remember from your sort of early days playing up at Langley the junior setup certainly wasn't as
1: organized as it is now they've got a, a really tight ship now Matt Stevens has worked very hard to pull that together we were introduced to senior cricket very early uh, and I remember representing the, the Sunday side, probably aged 14 or 15. I played one season aged 16 in the in the seniors first and second team before making the switch over to Mac at about 92, 93.
0: And how did that sort of switch come about really? Was it kind of driven out of you know wanting a higher level of cricket and a bigger club? Yeah, two reasons.
1: Um, first of all, Ronnie had moved over the year before. Uh, his dad, Brian, was playing in the third team and Mark was uh, Ronnie was playing with, with his dad. And then, yeah, it was just a natural development to take the, the next step up. Uh, played a half a season in the thirds, uh, a season in the twos at Mac, uh, and then started playing first team in around 93.
0: And uh, what, what do you remember from your sort of early days moving over to Macclesfields?
1: Uh, a very social side. Chuck in his podcast talked about a lack of intensity at training and uh, maybe not as professional as we could have been, but then when he came, he, he he was phenomenal. He just turned the club upside down and and made us into proper cricketers in the proper cricket club. It was good to be around.
0: And um, talking of Chuck there, obviously, um, as I mentioned before, you know, you are uh, synonymous with wicket keeping um, as, as a proud lifelong wicket keeper, I'm sure, even when I do make you uh, don the gloves now, although you, your knees probably don't thank me for it. But um, when did you start to really take your wicket keeping quite seriously? Or, or is it something you always did from a young age?
1: No, it was probably at about the time I came over to play at Mac. Some excellent role models in the side, not least Chuck. The second team at the time, didn't have a a, an established wicketkeeper so i took that role on and worked really hard on it and like you say i've I've enjoyed it over the years
0: very very good um obviously you know you mentioned chuck there as an influence not only to to you know the club and everyone around him but to yourself and i'm sure with the wicket keeping have there been any other sort of uh role models influences um or or overseas players uh, over the years in terms of the wicket keeping thing
1: yeah we um when i started playing first team cricket i didn't always keep wicket Uh, we had a a young chap called Peter Roach that came over I'm going to guess at about 96 for a season he played some first class cricket in Australia Uh, was an excellent keeper I think I spent all season at first slip that year hiding behind him he was brilliant I didn't hide behind him I took four catches off at first slip in a game at Upton
0: Talking of uh, people hiding behind the wicketkeeper I'm I'm sure we're both familiar with Rob Porter doing that has he ever hid behind you while you've been keeping? It's a big area to hide behind isn't it (laughs) I mean I'll, I'll line him up you knock about the park mate, <laughs>
1: there were sometimes when I questioned why he was standing at backstop instead of first slip. <laughs> he presented himself a new position at short backstop.
0: Well, we, we um we we came up with a great term for that this season, didn't we? A, a, a short helmet or <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, for those that are now wondering what on earth I'm talking about um, in a in a game for the third team, bizarrely uh, they, the, the sort of forty five on the one kept. Coming finer and finer, um, but he was—we couldn't decide whether it was a sort of short backstop, so we just decided that it was—he was just stood at the helmet where the wicketkeeper's helmet was, so. Hence, uh, we now call that position short helmet. Indeed. Going back to the wicket keeping, mate, um, is it something that you've always spent time, you know, in your sort of more serious playing days, um, training specifically for? Were, were there certain drills and things that you like to do? Or was it just a case of, you know, catching balls um, and, and, and you know, keeping two bowlers?
1: I'd, um, I'd always do something at training, whether that be keeping the net stood up or... Been part of the fielding drills, or one of the drills that we used to like to do with a hard ball was fling it at the roller uh, side on and, and take the ball off there. But I probably didn't work as hard as I could have done because obviously, in every wicket keeper, there's a frustrated leg spinner. <laughs> uh, and, I'd, and I'd like to take my turn at, bat, at bowling in the nets, and, and I could turn it. I could turn it, but I could only pitch one in ten. So, so, one in ten was a worldie, and nine out of ten were awful. Awesome.
0: So, you are, in fact, a, a deep and dark secreted leg spinner. I didn't know this.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's
0: hidden well back in my subconscious now. I mean, most of the uh, wicket keepers at our club tend to be um, chief exponents of the great and fine art of spin bowling.
1: Yes, yeah, there's a few. Um, Curly's a classic example of that, isn't
0: it? Yeah, Mitch. Mitch is the same. I mean, not that it's any great accolade, but Mitch gets me out for fun in the nets with his Filthy speem. um it's, it's absolutely unplayable. Um, mostly because it bounces three times and then bowls you. But um, it's yeah, wicket keepers and bowling. Are, it's a, it's an awful thing. I mean, pleasingly, we we will be moving on to talk about that. Um, and I'm rather excited when we get to some of your stats and stuff uh, for, for that very reason, yours. But. Um, you know, it's good, good to hear about your wicket-keeping. The last question I would have about that is um, knowing absolutely nothing about wicket-keeping myself. One thing I do hear people talk a lot about is the footwork. Um, is that something ever, you know, that you worked on particularly hard? No,
1: no, and it's probably something I should have worked at harder. I, I, I got away with it for years because my, my hands are, are relatively good and probably enjoyed standing up to the wicket a lot more than I did standing back. I remember having great problems keeping to Tom Barron, who bowled from really wide of the crease and a really skiddy delivery action and bowled huge in-swingers that would, would beat the off-stunt, but still end up down the leg side and I'd, I'd struggle uh, struggle moving my feet there. But yeah, keeping stood up to the wickets, I, I used to enjoy. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed keeping wicket to Barney. I was able to stand up to Barney. Barney made me look very good over the years. And I can confidently say that he, um, I never dropped a catch off him. I never fumbled a ball and I certainly never conceded any buys when I was stood up to the wicket to Barney on the basis that you never beat
0: the bat. I had a sneaking suspicion that there might be some talk of uh, standing up over the wicket coming, uh, especially as, as Barney has uh, thrown a few uh, shots out there on his podcast. But um, yeah. yeah, I can well believe it. Well, we will come back to talk about some stats in, in particular as pertaining to your wicket keeping, as I said. But before we move on to that, the other area that I really wanted to sort of dig into a little bit with you is, is captaincy. And as I said, you know, in, in your introduction, you are widely considered as uh, one of the best captains the club has had. And certainly, at sort of first team level, and again, as I mentioned, you know, certainly from from my point of view, and, and I'm sure there are countless other people who would agree that you know you've been very helpful to them over the years in terms of the sort of tactical side um, and field settings and things like this. I just kind of wanted to delve into, you know, perhaps what your philosophy really is to, to captaincy.
1: I, started, I took over the captaincy relatively young in the, in the first thing. I've done four years in total, and I think I was only 21 or 22 the first year I I'm captain. And at that time, I was lucky enough to be playing with former captains, the likes of Andy Tau, Steve Moores, Mike Reed. Simon Ackley, Bob, um, and, and just like life in general, I tend to see people and see good bits and bad bits about them and take the good bits, uh, of their character, their captaincy skills, uh, and develop them into my own. So I've learned to be a captain, having played with some excellent captains themselves and some very experienced cricketers. It is something I enjoy doing, certainly on a field. I don't enjoy the, the running around in the midweek, um, but certainly on the field, it's, it's been one of the best times in my cricketing career. And the philosophy would be, you know, to, to to play hard but play fair. You know, everybody wants to win, and certainly never wanted the team to be a pushover. Hopefully, we come across as a fair side.
0: Yeah, very much so. And and I think you know, as we've heard from lots of different people's stories over the years, um, you know, Macclesfield are traditionally pretty synonymous with with hard cricket. It has been discussed at times. Some people. Find that uh, a little bit challenging, but obviously we're always there and and look to have a beer after the game um, and and play cricket in the right way, certainly. But um, you know, ca- captaincy is, as you say, is a, is is a, an interesting topic, and and lots of people do it in very different ways. Um, but it's interesting, you know, to hear you talk about sort of various other people that you've had in and around the team, um, and and kind of learning different styles from different people, very much so. Um, I mean, certainly one of the things I find most interesting is is looking at sort of the types of games and the situations you find yourselves in. So if you're playing, you know, 90 or 100 overs for the day, in essence, you are still playing limited overs cricket. And, and certainly there are times in the games where you, you kind of not have to give up trying to take wickets, but you know, restricting the flow of runs is, is more important sometimes than, um, you know, trying to chase wickets. And it's kind of trying to manage those sorts of situations. Um, did you did you find at first team level, you, you sort of had to adapt um, during the games to the different positions you'd find yourself in? Yeah,
1: yeah. And that'd be one of my criticisms of, of some captaincy I've, I've witnessed. um in and outside of Mapplesfield, over the last few years watching from the sideline is that the captains are often too slow to react to the game changing and I consider that that every ball is a, a different event and um, there are slightly different circumstances at, at every different delivery that need to be considered whether that means uh, you know a, a slight change or a big field change and um, I, I think it's important that a captain constantly adapts to the way the game's flowing and that is ball by ball as opposed to
0: hour by hour yeah very much so and um, I suppose, you know, the I wouldn't say the advent, because obviously uh, T20's been around in different guises for a while, but certainly the, the rise and popularity of T20 cricket, I think, has has come to affect certainly the way the game is played from a batsman's point of view, but also the captaincy. Um, personally, I find captaining T20's incredibly stressful because there's so much to consider and it's, you know, you're always against the clock and trying, trying to get your overs in, but also the, the nature of it. And, and having to be uh, very changeable in, in what you're trying to achieve. Did you play sort of much limited overs cricket when you, when you were captaining the first team? I suppose you'd have had sort of 40 over cup games and things like that.
1: Yeah, it was um, various guises throughout, over the years. I think we played, in fact, the, the season we won the Premier League Cup double in 1999. That was 110 over competition. I think the majority of it were, were 100 over competitions, but interspersed with the... Uh, the Sunday Cup games. The league did introduce a 2020 competition towards the end of end of my playing career, but that's a young man's game, isn't it? And it's not something I particularly enjoyed. People like Carl and Evan Gulbis were coming through, and and they were taking the game by storm. But it it wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed. I much rather, much rather play the longer game.
0: <laughs> well, that's uh, something I can definitely attest to, and I'm always very glad when uh, Mitch Moors is is happy to take the reins for the T20 games and. I can just worry about bowling half follies and getting smashed for six. Anyway, moving on from uh, T20 cricket, it's it's as I say it's good to 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 kind of get your take on on captaincy and indeed keeping as well. Um but uh, at this juncture I think we will s- swap over and, and talk about some stats and some numbers um, so firstly I think we'll, we'll go over the batting stats I know obviously you're, you'll be very keen I'm sure to talk about some of your, your keeping and, and, and your dismissals and numbers there but um, you know did you ever consider yourself kind of much of a batsman did, did you have a sort of favourite position um, how did you see your role in terms of the batting side?
1: It changed over the years changed significantly over the years I think I've batted in every position certainly opened and I've certainly batted at number 11. Uh, I remember I made the league averages one year, which, in, which I had to average over 25. And I think I made them
0: by scoring 70 runs in the season, but only been dismissed twice. Well, this is the great thing about batting 10 and 11. You, uh, you end up inflating your average by virtue of stealing a few red inkers, don't you? Well, we'll talk about some numbers now, mate. Um, In total on Play Cricket, you you have played 253 games with 155 innings, uh, 53 not outs for the record, scoring 2046 runs with a highest score of 140 not out. And your average sits at just over 20. So there we go. Are are you a numbers man when it comes to your batting? Are Are you particularly bothered about things like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I wish played cricket was around when I started my career, because I think I might have missed my uh, my leading in life. I think I could have been a a statistician. Cricket statistician, that have suits me down to the ground. Yeah, there's obviously a load of games missing off there.
0: Oh, obviously. Yeah, everyone says that, don't they? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is that when you scored the three double hundreds?
1: (laughs) No, no. I made an 87 in a first-team game. I made a 97 in a second-team game and was run out by one of the worst runners between the wickets and I was only a young boy and I remember walking off in tears. Who was it? It's practice, it's it's, uh, he's on the umpire circuit now. Um, Chris Smith, big tall guy, he was a reasonable second team cricketer but awful between the stumps and I'm on 97, he comes out to bat, he hits one straight to cover, calls yes and just barbecues
0: me. Oh, no. Well, as I mentioned before, you know, we do like to talk about all the stats. And um, so we're going to move on to your bowling stats. And I'm delighted to say that you don't have any, um, which which is a first. Normally, I don't want to talk about people's bowlings, uh, especially people like Rob Porter. But um, you actually don't have any bowling stats on Play Cricket. So my question is... Have you ever bowled in a game and should there be some stats for you?
1: Yes, I bowled in a Sunday friendly game for Macclesfield and somewhere in the scorebook there will be stumped Turner, bowled Hughes. How I bad was that batsman?
0: That's, that's um, yeah, that's, that's a, a special, special dismissal, I'm sure. Um, was it a big leg spinner?
1: I've got no idea. <laughs> well, yeah i can only imagine there's a young kid that's run past one and, and, and Lee Turner's make the toma stump
0: very very good well uh we we can move swiftly on from your your bowling which i'm, I'm pleased to say um and move on to your, your fielding or keeping statistics should we say um, which is I know obviously uh, where your your focus on the numbers is, is probably keenest shall we say but uh, in, in total for Macclesfield um, you have 189 catches, 36 stumpings and you've got two runouts now I wonder if they're errant or have you affected runouts possibly in your earlier career when you weren't keeping? More than likely yeah
1: yeah. yeah. As a, as a younger and much fitter man.
0: <laughs> Very good. Now I'm sure you're going to tell me for free there are a lot of catches missing and I probably would believe you in that because play cricket can be a little bit uh, hit and miss on accrediting catches. What do you sort of feel about you? You're keeping numbers and things like that?
1: Yeah, there'll be, there'll be hundreds missed of off there. I, I, I think it's a, something that's continued with the club that we tend to be a stronger bowling setup than batting. And over the years, I've been fortunate to keep some of the, the best bowlers the county have had, the likes of Ronnie and Steve Moores and, and Alfie. Barney, to his credit, um, Steve Witters with the spinner. Yeah, so obviously all my big teams
0: come as a result of their bowling. What would you say the sort of challenges um, are as a keeper, uh, perhaps going from having, you know, Ronnie steaming in at one end to then having to be up to the stumps to to Steve Moores and his uh, bag of tricks at the other end? Is that that a challenge? It's
1: a challenge I enjoyed. And and what a great pairing they were to bowl together. Moores has played so much cricket. He's such a talented cricketer. And Ronnie just went through a purple patch of about five years when he was completely unplayable. I think he took seventy eight Premier League wickets one year. That's a massive amount of and obviously two thirds of those were caught behind.
0: caught Hughes says yeah. it in the book <laughs> and there is
1: a stumped Hughes Hillaby as well. Oh no is his
0: at chester and is was that that was a genuine stumping you weren't up <laughs> <in the stumps? laughs>
1: wow. I think probably from fairness to Ronnie, I'll tell, tell you that it was his 27th over.
0: <laughs> so uh, you wouldn't get up to the Stumps' uh, opening spell, would you? Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Very good. Well, that's, that's some of your numbers. And there are a couple of games that, that I want to pick out and, and talk about. Um, the first is uh, from not that long ago. This is the 8th of June, 2013 and uh, Macclesfield versus Neston. Um, and it's, it's the game in which you scored your, your highest score, or at least highest recorded score in play cricket. Jiggy, Will Smith and Elliot Fairclough open in the batting that day. Uh, Danny Ackley was at three and yourself at four. Um, and you scored 140 not out that day. Obviously, must have had a very sizable partnership with uh, young Elliot Fairclough. Um, do, you, do you remember much about the game? Did Beavis bat at five? No, Simon Ackley... Uh, Batted well nobody battered at five because there were only two wickets fell in the game Uh, macclesfield posted 266 for two declared um, with elliot on 74 and yourself 140 not out
1: so in a third team game you had three previous first team captains batting at three
0: four and five Uh, you had yeah jiggy opening with Elliot, danny 3 you u4 simon is listed as five. Yeah,
1: so in in the middle order with Danny, myself and Bob, you have three first team captains.
0: Yes. (laughs) That's not very fair, is it? Do you remember much from from the partnership uh, with Elliot?
1: Um, I remember he was quicker between the wickets than I was. I remember pulling out of my stance a couple of times because I couldn't see because of the sweat pouring down my face and I couldn't breathe. I remember keeping wicket afterwards and then for three or four days just not being able to physically move. Every muscle in the body was...
0: You will uh, not be surprised to know that Macclesfield did run out winners in that uh, particular game. Neston were all out for 185. Now, the other game that that I wanted to talk about, and it's it's one that you know you'd mentioned um, coming back to your sort of first team career here. This is from the 4th of September 2010. Uh, Macclesfield first team played Widnes first team, and I'll, I'll let you sort of set the scene for the game really, and, and and tell everyone what happened. Okay,
1: I'd um I'd already made the decision that 2010 was going to be my last playing season. Uh, Claire was pregnant and due to give birth to our second child Alfie in the October, so the demands of training twice a week playing. Every Saturday, most Sundays, just wasn't going to be fair for the family. So it was going to be my last year. We were playing in Division 1, and we had a side that was good enough for promotion. That particular game you mentioned was the penultimate game of the season. And at the time, Mac Grappenhall and Widness were 50 points clear of the chasing pack. And just the way the fixtures planned out, it was almost certainty that the winner of the Mac widness game would be promoted as champions, and the losers would finish third and not get promoted. So quite an important game that we started badly. Um, slipped to 69 for four with the the stronger batters, Cal, Bemo, Ports already out. managed to straight to 140 for seven. Me and Barney put 30-odd on, and we were able to finish at 178. So, not favourites, but we did have a bit of a momentum switch at the end. Uh, And they had a great start and and were always favourites. They lost a couple of wickets in the the middle overs. Uh, But looking at play cricket with... Six overs and one ball left. They were 157 for five with a set batsman. So they needed 21 of 37 balls with five wickets in hand. I was gutted. That's not the way I wanted to finish the season. The team was downbeat. The witness members were popping champagne corks on the, on the boundary, knowing that they were going to finish the season as champions. And then the last ball of the 44th over, Tom Barron, picks up their set batsman uh, and they fall six wickets down. And I'm trying to think he was captain. I think it might have been Path. Almost certainly it was Path. Path made a bowling change and brought Tatey on for a second spell. He hadn't picked a wicket up in his first spell, but that over that he bowled went wicket bowled, dot, wicket bowled, dot, wicket caught behind, wicket bowled. He took four wickets in six balls with uh, Tom Barron's wicket in the space of seven balls. We picked up uh, five wickets for North and won the game. It was uh, crazily changing rooms afterwards. we have gone from almost certainly losing and not getting promoted to a, a, an outstanding over from Tati to, to picking up league champions. Brilliant really way to finish my senior career.
0: Very, very good. And um, that was the second to last game, I think you said. And, and I believe Mac ran out winners the, the last game of the season and, and won the league. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we did. We didn't need to win the game, though, I don't think, because we'd already got the 25-point gap between us and Grappinall. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we did win the last game, I think.
0: Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. Since the debut episode back in March, we have amassed over 7,000 unique downloads and been recognised by the ECB with a National Award for Proactive Leadership in the Community, as featured recently on Sky Sports. The podcast continues to develop and grow, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank all of you, the listeners, for continuing to support and engage with the podcast. The podcast is self-funded, and we could not continue to create content without the support of our patrons. For anyone interested in supporting the podcast, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash getitwhacked, or you can click the link in the description of this podcast. Thank you. One of the things, talking about some numbers that I know you are very proud of, um, and I think I'm right in saying you still actually hold a record for dismissals um, in, in the first division, is that correct? I do, yes. Yeah, I think, you, is that from the 2006 season? 2006
1: season, yeah. 36 dismissals, I thought that, would have, that would have been beaten since then, but it hasn't. The, the bowling attack that year was Ronnie, Ian Tate, uh, a left-arm spinner, Cy Patterson, uh, Stevie Witt uh, and Evan Goldberg.
0: Not a bad bowling attack, I think we could probably say.
1: Not at all. Especially when Ronnie could bowl 25 overs a game. Getting the ball out of his hand was horrible. He'd whinge and moan on a Sunday morning, oh, you've over bowled me again, you've over me again. I'd try and get the ball out of his hand on a Saturday. Just one more, just one more. Nightmare to captain.
0: <laughs> well, if you're steaming in and taking wickets, I suppose it's uh, difficult to argue.
1: Yeah, and that's the reason he took 78 wickets in a season, because he bowled 4,000 overs. <laughs>
0: Well, I wouldn't argue with him, uh, and I I dare say there wouldn't be too many people that would be keen to argue with Ronnie either. No, no, he's a big strong boy. He certainly is. Um, now, it's great to hear the sort of anecdotes and, and some stories from there from, from some of your years. I know there's another season that you're sort of particularly proud uh, to have been part of. Um, and you mentioned it a little bit before when uh, when the side won the, the Premier League and, and Cup double in 1999. Um, what what can you tell us uh, about that team in the season and, and perhaps why you're sort of so proud of that uh, particular season?
1: Yeah, that, that was just a great group of mates supported by... A very talented overseas player. Some of those people that we played with last year remain some of my closest friends. You know, we've been best man, men best men at each other's weddings. We're godfathers to each other's kids. I'm talking about the likes of Ronnie and Danny and Bod Ackley. Morsy, um, Alfie Towley. It was effectively a team that had an opening bat in, in Mike Reid, an overseas player that would bat at three, who was an all-rounder, a number 11 in Towley, and then eight number sevens. Post of which could bowl. Everyone chipped in at some at some stage, uh, and it was a it was a common theme that you know we'd post one fifty most games and and roll sides for one twenty. One fifty was a winning score. Can I, can I just mention a quick story about Mike Reid? Mike Reed is an absolute gentleman. He's a very good cricketer, a very good opening bat. A little bit older than me, uh, and just a really nice guy. Just like the senior teams are doing now, we used to have the fines meetings at the end of the game so small fines for non-cricketing misdemeanors that year bod was the fines master and reedy was the chief sneak and he managed the money and he'd keep this money in a small tin uh, in the front of his car and we ended up in a barbecue at his house in Poynton one afternoon he was chucking down there was tarpaulin all over the house and we stole the fines money from reedy's car and the next week he turned up at the game and he said oh guys i'm so so sorry i've lost the fines money i don't know where it is and Bob gave in a huge spray about how that was our money for our end of season due and what a bad guy he was. And Reedy felt awful. You know, Bob sat with the, the fines money in his, in his cricket bag. But Reedy felt really bad. And let's just say, for the sake of the story, there was £100 in, in the fines money. Bob distributed that to five others, gave us each £20, with the instruction to go and give it back to Reedy and say we felt sorry for him. So we'd all sidle up to him and say, "Oh, really? I'm so sorry that Bob gave you such a such a spray. Uh, I feel really bad. You shouldn't feel bad. It's a mistake. It's twenty quid out my own money to to top it up." And really was over the moon. Oh, guys, you're so good. I'm such a bad person. Thanks very much. And we must have done. and We all gave him back, so it gets back to the hundred pounds that it was. And really thinks that we're all great blokes, but really we're just horrible people. But we did it so well that we had a, a junior that was knocking around with the first team, doing some scoring and what have you. He went back to his parents and said that Reedy feels really bad about um, losing the fines money. Uh, the first team captain shouted at him. He feels really bad. Can I have twenty pounds to give to Reedy? And his dad gave him twenty quid. <laughs> and he comes up to Reedy and said, "Here you go, Reedy. I feel really sorry for what you. Have this." <laughs> so we, we we made another twenty quid out of the uh, out the fines money.
0: Oh no! Well, I, it's 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 funny you mention uh, sort of finds there, and I uh, I'm looking forward to doing an episode with with the Ackley brothers uh, in the future. And uh, one of the things I'm I'm very keen to talk about certainly with them is uh, is of course the the great art of finds and, and Bod probably considered by many to be the sort of premium uh, finds master. I, I don't know whether you'd uh, agree with that.
1: Absolutely concur with that. And um, the best finds meeting ever was the last night of my stag do in La Touquet when Bod had been running the fines, the finds book. And he stood up and he made an hour speech that had us all in tears. It was brilliant. Some of the fines, a lot of the fines can't be mentioned, but I've got some really fond memories of that, that evening in a restaurant.
0: <laughs> very, very good. Well, uh, you have sort of moved us on nicely to the next section here. Uh, yours. There, are, there are a number of stories that have sort of come up and, and in particular, you know, in, in recent podcasts, you know, you mentioned Barney there. Um, but I think there are a few that you'd really like to have your say on. Now, firstly, uh, back in Bemo's podcast, he, he mentioned uh, a bit of an incident uh, involving a phone call. And, and, you know, you said to me that you'd, you'd like to sort of give your take on this. So is there anything you'd like to say?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, Bemo. Um, you, you, you mentioned something on the lines of, despite the kind of character I portray myself as now, yeah, I may be that poacher-turned-gamekeeper and was involved in a number of pranks. The mobile phone in the pants, in their pads, that had been done a couple of times in the professional game. Uh, and I think it was me and Port snuck out a tee early one, one game and, and hid this mobile phone in the back of his pants and let him face a couple of balls. And then the ball, time of the, the phone call, when the bowler's right at the end of his run-up, so just as he gets to the delivery side, this phone starts ringing in Ben's pants, And he hasn't got a clue. He hasn't got a clue where it's coming from. He got all cross and stroppy, and he did. He had a couple of pissy fits a couple of times. We, uh, we would pick on him. Um, Some might call it bullying. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't support that now. Just little things like tying his laces so tight that he had to use a set of scissors or a knife to get him shoes on. And at the time, Sam would have been one or two years old, and I'd take him into the changing rooms and change his nappy and, and leave a nappy in Ben's bag. But there was one particular game. He used to bring sandwiches to eat after the warm-up, before opening the batting. And we I do silly things with them. For example, open the tin foil out, take a bite, close it up, put it back. Just, just silly things like that. One particular afternoon, he brought a ham salad sandwich in. So while he's out on the ground and I'm messing around in the changing rooms, I take the, the ham out of the sandwich and replace it with a piece of paper. And he comes back in and I'm sat there giggling, waiting for him to take a bite out of the sandwich. And he took a massive bite, gets a mouthful of paper, stands up, stomps his feet. I don't know why I even bother and threw the sandwich at me. And I can remember sat there in the changing room with a tomato dribbling down my face, just giggling because Ben had had such a scrap. So I'd like to apologize to Ben for my behavior in the early 2000s.
0: Well, I will, I will press him for a response in due course. Moving on to another one of the, the sort of recent mentions on the podcast, um, the sort of infamous bunch of wild animals incident on Barney's podcast. And he's been mentioned a few times, so there's probably a little bit more room uh, for that story. And I, and I know you wanted to add something to the, uh, to the, the bunch of wild animals incident.
1: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to put a, a bit more meat on the bones of the story. So it was a game against the Edge and there was always a local Rivalry between us. Um, the games were always hard fought, but there was a number of incidents, most of them involving Ronnie, that led to it being such a competitive and highly charged game. Barney was right. We won a low-scoring game. We made 173 and bowled them out for 77, uh, where Ronnie took seven for 19. I think Barney took one and Chris Moore's took one. And there's a run out I'll talk about in a minute. The first incident. When we're batting, somebody hits. we're all sat in front of the pavilion on the edge of the boundary, square of the wicket. Somebody hits the ball out towards the boundary towards us. It flies along the floor, hits the rope and jumps up. And Ronnie, who's fully padded up, waiting to go into bat, instead of catching the ball and tossing it back to the fielder or rolling it along the floor, stands up and smashes it to log on towards the tennis court, takes a massive chunk out of it. And we're all stuck up and Ronnie What what have you done? You do anyway they had a a former professional cricketer um, Steve O'Shaughnessy who's now on the international umpire circuit Uh, he played for Lancashire and Worcestershire and then finished his career at Alderley Edge he gave Ronnie such a rollicking from the middle of the square some of the words he was using I didn't even understand but he gave him such a spray and then a couple of balls later wicket falls Ronnie goes out to bat I think he snicked his third ball didn't walk wasn't given he got much, much more of a spray. A couple of balls later, he gets cleaned up uh, and, and walks back to the pavilion. And Steve Shornis, he follows him every step of the way, abusing him. He walks him into the changing room, giving him abuse. So that was the first thing that, that happened in that game that probably upped the ante a little bit. Uh, and then to defend 179, I'm stood back, keeping to Ronnie. Uh, Morsey stood at first slip. And as he is still, Morsey is the master in charge of cricket at the King's School. Uh, a very proud role that he, he does there. The opening batter was Alan Day. Uh, and we played against Daisy for years and and he was a King's School pupil at the time. Ronnie came in, he, he snipped it. Morsey took the ball on the half volley of the second bounce and jokingly threw the ball up in the air, jokingly appealed. And Daisy turned around to him and said, Mr. Mors, Mr. Moores, did you catch that? And Morsey went, yeah put the ball in his pocket and Daisy just walked on the base. if Mr. Moore said he caught the ball Mr. Moores had caught it we we got Daisy like that and there was some upset from the elderly players or oh, they had a marquee as well they had a they had a function on so there was quite a big crowd and the crowd were unhappy that, catch that we it. and then the final straw of the coffin was Ronnie's bowling at Mark Curry Mark's a really good guy a nice guy and scored a lot of runs over, over the years against us And Cuzza drives Ronnie straight back down the ground. Ronnie dives, tries to stop it, but doesn't get within a foot of it. The ball clashes into the stumps, and Ronnie starts yelling, shaking his hand around like his finger's just been shot off. And the umpire says, well, if it hurts that much, he must have got a finger on it, and gives Cuzza out. (laughs) Couser's just stood there in total disbelief, asking Ronnie if he's going to call him back. That's how the game had got to the stage, it it, it had done. Uh, And like I say, we bowled really well, we caught catches, we caught the hollies, and it was a a big song in the changing room. We took the roof off, and then obviously the next morning, as Barney explained, there's a letter to our chairman from their chairman about us behaving like a bunch of wild animals. So then for the rest of the season, we got Ronnie fielding down at Fine Leg, making animal noises. All of a sudden he would be an elephant, and then a gorilla, and the opposition will be looking at him, what's he doing oh, don't worry he's just behaving like a wild animal
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good. I will have to make sure that Couser and uh, Daisy listen to this podcast and see if they <laughs> see if they've got a take on that and then the other incident that uh, has come come to light recently uh, that i'm I'm very keen to get your uh, your side of things on obviously we We had shenner on the podcast and he told this great story about Shane Warren turning up to training. And uh, you know, you you were there, young young yours batting, and he was bamboozling you and cleaned you up, and then you smashed him for a big six. But I think we've got to get your your take and your side of this story, Ozzy.
1: Okay, okay. Can I take you back? That was a Monday night. Can I take you back to the Sunday, the day before? So it's 1993. It's the second year of the double double winning team, and the year that they introduced the rule that the overseas. Couldn't play in the cup games on a Sunday because of what Chuck had done in '92. They stopped him playing in '93. So I made I kept in a game against Bramwell uh, Grappenhall, sorry, um, because Chuck couldn't. Chuck turned up with warning, uh, and we're doing laps of the field. Our opening batter at the time was a fellow called Steve Hackett, uh, everybody knew as Henry. Now Henry was the the second grumpiest man ever to walk on the earth, but his parents would come to watch him. Uh, his dad, Bernard, who is the grumpiest man in the world, and Doris, his wife, who's a lovely, lovely lady. So they'd often come and watch him and they'd have a chat and chat with the boys and nice people. But on this particular game, Bernard turned up with a 20 year old blonde on his arm. I was like, wow, who's that? And some of the boys, picking up on my naivety, said, oh, that's Bernard's new girlfriend. He's left Doris. He's got himself a new young girl. Go on, Bernard. Good lad, he'd have been about 15, he's got this 20-year-old blonde on his arm. So for the next couple of weeks, I, uh, I spent the time thinking that Bernard had got himself a new, a new girlfriend and that he was uh, enjoying himself in life. Only until two weeks later that he turned up with Doris and with the blonde girl. It turns out that it's his daughter uh, and Henry's sister. Uh, and we start a relationship, it's Claire, and we're together 27 years later. She's a lucky lady she certainly is so that was the that was the Sunday Um, Ronnie gets mentioned a lot of these stories doesn't he he does he's a bad man you need to get him on he split the webbing on his finger dropping a catch from the all opener and there was blood and skin everywhere he needed to go to hospital he needed at least six stitches but that was Ronnie in the early 90s so not the most sensible period of his life I think after that game a few of the boys went with Chuck and Warney into Hale Village for some beers. Uh, and, and Ronnie didn't turn up to a hospital until three or four days later. Uh, so the next day, we're at, we're at training and we knew that Warney was coming down. I don't think he started bowling right at the start of the session. He he was bow- he started bowling halfway through the session at a time when I'm putting my pads on. I'm thinking, crikey, I'm going to face Shane War, It's the great Shane one. Uh, how lucky am I? And he was bowling medium pace. And he was bowling medium pace at a young lad called uh, Neil Boothby, uh, one of the, the 13 up-and-coming players. And Boothby finishes his bat. He's batted against Shane Warne. And I go out there and, and I start batting against him. He's bowling medium pace. And I pick the courage up and say, excuse me, Mr. Warne, I'm never going to face anything like this again in my life. Would you mind bowling leg spin? And, and good on him, he did. And Shenner's right. I couldn't get anywhere near it. It wasn't just the amount he was spinning, but it was the pace he was bowling at. You could hear the ball fizzing in the air, but he was bowling like a a medium pacer would. And I was getting hit. I was playing and missing. I looked stupid. The boys are laughing at me. Um, And and he bowled one two foot outside the off stump that I knew wasn't going to bowl me. So instead of playing and missing at it and looking even more stupid, I'll be cool and I'll leave it. So it pitched two foot outside my off stump big, strong, positive leave, and it bowled me low up. And the boys are rolling on the floor laughing because I just literally couldn't look more stupid. So I can't look anyway, so I'm gonna have to try something. So it, I just got lucky. I, I used my feet, I shut my eyes, the head went back, completely off balance, I swung from the hip, uh, and it just got lucky. And yeah, it it went over his head and it, and it went for six. I don't remember saying anything to him. I, I really don't. Shanna said I did, but I, I can't remember. But I know he did. He turned around and gave me a huge spray about, I wouldn't be able to do that in a game because I'd already been in the pavilion. It was full of personal abuse and it was full of swear words. He obviously didn't like the idea that this club cricketer, this spotty 18-year-old, I did him six. And thinking of it, do you reckon I'm the worst cricketer that he's been hit for six by? I can't imagine him playing many Premier League cricketers in his time. I can't think there's going to be a worse person that's put him for
0: six. Well, if if that's the accolade that you want to you want to take with you, uh, I think uh, nobody's going to stop you. It has to come with a caveat,
1: though. Shenner Sh- said it was a centre wicket practice. Yes, we were practicing on the square, but we were right on the side of the park side. Uh, sorry, we were right on the side of the hospital, and the boundary there isn't the biggest over the on and it only just crept over. But it's still a six, isn't it? And he's still shangwon.
0: Very, very good indeed. Former podcast guest and regular mentionee, Carl Burgess, is undertaking a fundraising challenge in the new year. And in the words of the big man himself, As most of you know, I treat my body like a temple. If that temple was a medieval ruin ravaged by kebabs and excessive amounts of alcohol. So from the 1st of January until the 26th of March, and probably beyond, I will be taking part in the East Cheshire Hospice Pounds for Pounds Challenge. Since 1988, East Cheshire Hospice has been caring for families suffering from life-limiting illnesses. They put their patients, their carers and families at the centre of everything they do and their expert medical team is only the start of the holistic care they provide. The aim of this challenge is for Carl to get in the gym and lose some weight. And he's also guaranteed that if he doesn't lose his goal amount, which will be confirmed on January the 1st after discussions with a personal trainer and nutritionist, he will personally double the amount raised out of his own pocket. For more information and to donate to this fantastic cause, please search Carl Burgess 84 on justgiving.com or click on the link in the podcast description. Now moving on to the next section of the podcast, yours. I have to lower the tone from being uh, quite humorous here we we have got a bit of a serious section to move on to here i'm afraid and and somewhat appropriately leading on from some of these stories i think it's uh, it's fair to say you have at times been uh, linked with various incidents of well shall we say a sort of pranking nature together with uh, various incidents of a, a sort of cricketing nature as well as a man of the law you, of course, will be aware of the uh, the severity of making allegations against individuals. Uh, there is, of course, a, a correct process for upholding the law, and uh, and a cricket club is is no different. And as such, I'm sure you'll be aware, and, and undoubtedly, you'll have been involved in a number of kangaroo courts. Some of our listeners may not be aware that uh, our judicial system, if you, if you want to describe it as such, is, is presided over by the Lord Chief Justice Stephen Whittingham, QC, a.k.a. the General, And uh, word of various incidents involving yourself has has reached his desk. And he's asked me, part of the prosecution service, to, to interview you over these allegations. Therefore, I will remind you that whilst you are not yet under formal investigation, anything that you do say can and will be used against you in a future kangaroo court should the need arise. So, Yos, what I'm going to do here is I'm, I'm going to move on to a number of uh, questions that uh, we'd like to pose to you um, to, to get your formal response to, if that's okay.
1: <laughs> he laughs nervously.
0: So our first question, yours, is as follows. AC 12 interview, 12 December 2020, present Senior Officer Horner, investigating
1: Officer Moores, accuracy, Paul at hughes Mr Hughes, is it true that the ICC implemented the fake fielding rule purely because of your antics behind the stumps? Oh, you're referring to Nigel Muirhead. Uh, Nigel Muirhead is one of the nicest fellows we've come across on the cricket field played first-team cricket for years at Toft. I think he's now the chairman or the president. He's just a really nice fella. And uh, we're playing one game against him. I not think how long it would be. Um, anyway, he was on 60-odd. 60-odd not out. I'm stood up to the stumps. Alfie's bowling. He's throwing one down the leg side. And for some unknown reason, Nigel Muirhead thinks I've missed it. Um, he probably expected me to, and he set off for a run. And um, I took the bales off, because he's stumped. The umpire gave him out. He pleased to me that I'd, uh, I'd faked it, but I hadn't, um, and he asked if I would draw my appeal, and I asked him if he'd do the same, if it was the other way around, and he just shrugged and walked off. So yes, maybe that is the case, but I wasn't as bad as Chester. Sheamus had it down to perfection. Sheamus would pretend to lose the ball down the leg side, hide the ball behind his back, his twofer, his first and second slip and rush down to fine leg. Fine leg would sprint off the boundary as though they were fielding this imaginary ball,
0: and, uh, and Sheamus would take the bells off. Just cheated. I'm sorry, Nigel. Well, it's a, it's the first of a number of quite serious accusations, yours. That's all I'm going to say. Moving on to the next one. Over the years, many players have made accusations, having discovered unusual items in their kit bags. Timeframes varied from a few weeks up to discoveries made after a whole winter, that's September through to April. Do you have any rec- recollection of what these items may have been? can you confirm or deny your involvement in the misplacement of these items?
1: I have no idea what Parf's talking about. And whatever it is, it was Porter.
0: I mean, the unfortunate thing is here that you are lying now because uh, you already mentioned articles that may have formerly belonged to your very young son at the time appearing in people's kit bags.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I sometimes would hide nappies in kit bags. You're not gonna tell me one spent the whole winter in somebody's bag, right?
0: I mean, all I can say is that the questions are being posed to you. Um, whether it's taken any further is not up to me, yours.
1: <laughs>
0: That's a matter for the judicial system, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'll have I'll have that next question paul hughes uh, my name is david bostock and i do have an allegation to put to you and that is that you were the instigator nay ringleader of a gaggle of trespassers who during the joyous event of thomas and sophie parfit's wedding did break into the accommodation of myself and my good wife and then proceeded to tamper with various objects in fact, evidence has come to light in the form of a photograph of Sarah's toothbrush in a rather vicarious position
1: on your person. Would you like to please comment? I can't stop laughing, thinking about it. It, it was one of the funniest experiences of of my life. <laughs> I'm trying to think who was involved. Um, Porter was, was definitely involved. Uh, Salas and Morrison, I think and we'd managed to blag the security guard to give us the keys. And some of the things that went on in that room uh, just don't need to be spoken about. Um, (laughs) I can't believe Bostock's wife slept on that pillow after what did into it.
0: And uh, with regards to the uh, inanimate object that uh, Bozza is referencing there, any any comment?
1: Toothbrush, underwear. Again, I'm sorry.
0: Right. uh, There have been a a number of fairly serious allegations made there. Um, Some cricket, some non-cricket related but um i've had to save the most serious allegation till last um and this is this is no laughing matter i have to say so I'll, I'll need to get your take on this next question please
1: when you lent your gear to chuck to make his australian debut did you actually feel as though you were out there with him did you feel part of it because i know deep down you really wanted to be an aussie far from it chuck far from it but i've lived out on those stories for years and i actually think it was chuck's own gear himself he brought me a set of gloves over from his sponsor, Gray Nichols, uh, for me to use in the season. So it probably technically wasn't my kit. It was me returning Chuck's kit to Chuck, but definitely never wanted me an Aussie. Can you imagine?
0: I mean, I'm just asking the questions here yours.
1: No, no, he's wrong. That's the only one I'm not going to have. I'll have the rest. I'm having that.
0: Very, very good indeed, mate. Well, as I say, I mean, these uh, these uh, allegations have, uh, have been sort of levied against you and I'm no doubt that, uh, that the Lord Chief Justice Whittingham will be uh, listening in intently and who knows if we ever get back to the stage where kangaroo courts can be held in the clubhouse next season, fingers crossed, you may find your way uh, onto said kangaroo court but uh, it's, uh, it's it's TBC I think.
1: I'll look forward for the opportunity to defend myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good indeed. Right, uh, moving on towards the end of the podcast here. Um, having uh, got through some of that, that fun stuff there, um, obviously I mentioned right back at the beginning about the fact that you have quite recently taken over the role as uh, head of the academy. Um, firstly, I just kind of wanted to talk a, talk a little bit about the academy, um, some of your aims and, uh, and and yeah, plans for the future with the academy. Really. Okay.
1: Um, so the overall aim of the academy. It is to improve the strength and quality of the cricketers within the club in the future. That is the overall aim. And we're seeing that happen. We're seeing um, previous academy members breaking into the first team and performing. We've seen it happen over the years. But that's not the only reason for the academy or the only goal for the academy. It's to get quality coaching to young kids to enjoy themselves with a cricket bat in their hand or a cricket ball in their hand. We've got a huge group of of willing volunteers um, on the field and off it. I think we've currently got 150 kids in our academy set up. So if only we get a third of those that are involved in senior cricket in the years to come, that's an outstanding achievement. The academy has been known over the years to be uh, an excellent set up. Stuart Garnett or Alfie has to take a huge amount of credit for that. I out with Alfie a little bit when I was captaining in when would it be? 2001, 2002, when he decided that he was going to stop playing at a time when he could still offer a significant amount to the first team to concentrate in the club's academy. And when you consider that he hasn't got his own children involved in cricket, it's it, it was a, a huge undertaking for Alfie to do. I'm very grateful for all the work he's done. And I know there are hundreds and hundreds of kids and parents that are grateful for the work he's done. So, I've just picked up the mantle from Alfie and I'm trying to do the same things he's done. It's in a good place at the minute.
0: And in terms of sort of, you know, progression for the future and things like that, uh, are there any sort of aims in terms of uh, development within the teams and, and goals that you, you want to achieve within the academy in, in sort of the short term and the long term?
1: Short term goal is to introduce women and girls. And there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes by some of the coaches that have involved been involved with. The starting of that section at the end of last season, and that's picked up real momentum. Um, so we're we're joining the, the 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 20th century and having a, a women's and girls team. So that's the, the short term goal. The long term one, as I said, will be to improve the quality and the standard of first-team cricket at the club, or senior cricket at the club.
0: Fantastic. Um, yours. before we head on towards the end of the podcast, I thought it'd be just interesting to get some aims for next season from you, um, perhaps uh, from from yourself uh, and, and your, your children's playing, perhaps, and indeed, obviously, the academy as well.
1: Okay, so personally, um, you know my views on this. I'm not the future of the club. I want to spend as much time watching my children play a game that I love. Um, I want to watch young cricketers develop into the teen- senior sides, learning and enjoying themselves. I don't ever want to be in a field with you again, without being rude. <laughs> I'd like to see the the ex-Academy members, the likes of uh, Brad Shore and uh, Henry Mitchell, um, Ali Kerwin, develop and, and cement themselves in first and second team cricket and start to, to perform, because they are um, the results of the hard work that's been done at the Academy. So that's really positive
0: to see. Fantastic. Um, And uh, I'm sure much as you, you like to say, you'll be very happy not to play. Um, anybody that uh, does, in fact, uh, have uh, Sam playing for them will be very pleased to know that you, you've become uh, somewhat a scoring wizard um, with your with your scoring app. Um, and for those that don't know, Yoz has been scoring in games uh, when his eldest son, Sam, has been playing. Um, but he manages to produce wagon wheels, um, where the ball's gone, where it's been hit, uh, regions. So you get this sort of seven or eight page PDF after the game. So uh, I know any any captain will be <laughs> very pleased when Sam is playing and you're not because you'll therefore do the scoring.
1: I enjoy the scoring. It keeps me out of the bar.
0: Well, look, I must say, Oz, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, any closing remarks before we wrap the podcast up?
1: I'd just like to to thank you for what you've done. Um, I've had a really good week this week. I was I was a little bit apprehensive about doing it um but what i've done is i've sat down and I've, I've thought about memories and that memory's linked to another memory and i've forgotten what i'd forgotten so i've got so many happy memories from the club um, it played it's played a really big part of my life uh, i met my wife through it my best friends so so thank you for that opportunity and thank you for the work you're doing with the podcast it's brilliant
0: mate you're you're very welcome and and thank you once again for coming on and and uh, engaging a bit of uh... Good natured storytelling, as as well as some great uh, cricket related things as well, mate. So we look forward to seeing you soon, and uh, thanks once again for for coming on the podcast, Charles. Thank you, Miles.